Hello, this is Dean Hess, editor of Respiratory Care, along with our assistant editor, Sarah Moore. We bring you the podcast of the February issue. Sarah, let's get started with our Editor's Choice paper. Our Editor's Choice paper this month is a retrospective study by Weyer and colleagues that compares therapist-directed and physician-directed respiratory care in COPD subjects with acute pneumonia. They found no difference in length of stay between the groups, suggesting that the RT-directed protocol did not confer a disadvantage. Moreover, the RT-directed protocol may have presented some benefit in reducing the 30-day post-discharge readmission rate. As Her states, these results provide additional reason for promoting the use of RT-directed protocols. The aim of the study by Figueroa Cassis et al. was to assess the magnitude and timing of change in breathing variables during the course of a 30-minute spontaneous breathing trial. During the course of a 30-minute SBT, breathing parameters remained relatively constant, and significant changes in these variables after 10 minutes of the SBT were uncommon. Loke points out that available evidence is not sufficient to support a 10-minute SBT, but this possibility merits further investigation. Masika and colleagues conducted a one-year retrospective study of the use of high-flow nasal cannula in subjects with ARDS. They report a high success rate with the HFNC and suggested this therapy might be considered as first-line therapy in this patient population. Nishimura suggests that, although this study has limitations of being an observational study, and despite issues such as indications for HFNC, timing for the start of therapy, and criteria for escalating treatment beyond this therapy, it suggests that HFNC is a promising modality for early treatment of adults with severe acute respiratory failure. Fratt et al. evaluated the clinical efficacy of consecutive use of high-flow nasal cannula followed by non-invasive ventilation in acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. They found that high-flow nasal cannula was better tolerated than NIV and allowed for significant improvement in oxygenation and tachypnea compared to standard oxygen therapy in subjects with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. Thus, high-flow nasal cannula might be used effectively between NIV sessions. The objective of the study by Davidson et al. was to determine whether 30 meters of tubing compared to 6 meters of tubing affects flow and FiO2 delivery from a cylinder or oxygen concentrator. They found no important changes in flow or FiO2 with the longer tubing. Chanel and colleagues evaluated an automated endotracheal tube cuff controller during simulated mechanical ventilation. They found a significant drop in manually set cuff pressure in a stationary model and an even larger drop with movement. This was reduced by use of the automated controller. They also observed that cuff pressure varies with inspiratory airway pressure for both techniques, leading to elevated average cuff pressures. 
The effect of leaks on volume-targeted pressure support NIV has only been tested with continuous simulated leaks. Lu Jean et al. found that the introduction of random leaks influenced the performance of ventilators with single-limb circuits and intentional leak. The decrease in delivered tidal volume with inspiratory leak reached a magnitude that might be clinically important. A late inspiratory rise in airway pressure caused by inspiratory muscle relaxation or expiratory muscle contraction is frequently seen during pressure support. Chen et al. used a bench model to investigate the effects of respiratory mechanics, inspiratory flow, flow cycle criteria, duration of inspiratory muscle relaxation, and four types of ventilators on late inspiratory rise in airway pressure. They found that resistance and compliance could affect the late rise in pressure. The late rise in pressure was unlikely to be abolished by lowering flow cycle criteria when inspiratory effort was strong and relaxation time was rapid. Gakuin and colleagues evaluated trends in prevalence and prognosis of subjects with acute on-chronic respiratory failure treated by NIV and or invasive ventilation between 1998 and 2012. Over this time, the use of NIV increased significantly in those with COPD. Mortality remained stable while the severity increased. Transition from NIV to invasive ventilation was associated with poorer prognosis. De Blasi et al. evaluated nitric oxide delivery in neonatal non-invasive respiratory support devices. They found that clinicians cannot assume that the set dose of nitric oxide results in a similar lung dose with all forms of non-invasive support. This could result in the need to change settings or use a different form of support. The nitrogen dioxide level delivered to the patient might also be greater than the value reported on the delivery system. De Souza et al. compared the performance of timed inspiratory effort to three other indexes of weaning outcome in subjects with neurological and neuromuscular disorders. The timed inspiratory effort index might have a better performance than other weaning indexes in this population. The aim of the study by Unlu et al. was to determine the knowledge of subjects with COPD about vaccinations to find the rate of inoculation with influenza and pneumococcal vaccines and to assess the effectiveness of vaccination status. Their results suggest that physicians could do a better job recommending both influenza and pneumococcal vaccines to all patients with COPD. Lee and colleagues measured pepsin concentrations and pH in exhaled breath condensate to determine the relationship with gastroesophageal reflux in bronchiectasis or COPD. Pepsin was detectable in EBC samples in bronchiectasis and COPD. Although no association was found between pepsin concentration and diagnosis of gastroesophageal reflux, a moderate relationship between sputum and EBC pepsin concentrations suggests that pepsin in the EBC may be a useful non-invasive marker of pulmonary microaspiration. Chen and colleagues investigated the association between COPD phenotype and exhaled hydrogen sulfide, lung function, and plasma levels of inflammatory factors. 
Exhaled hydrogen sulfide levels were lower in subjects with eosinophilia. Increased exhaled hydrogen sulfide predicted a non-eosinophilic phenotype. Mitchell and colleagues identified subjects with radiologic usual interstitial pneumonia to determine differences in the extent and severity of radiologic fibrosis and or emphysema in those with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis versus individuals with non-IPF UIP. When controlled for confounders, smokers with IPF and emphysema had worse radiologic IPF and emphysema than smokers with non-IPF UIP and emphysema. This suggests a synergy among IPF, emphysema, and smoking. Lou et al. conducted a meta-analysis to examine the efficacy and safety of subcutaneous immunotherapy in mite-sensitized individuals with asthma. Their results suggest that subcutaneous immunotherapy is helpful in alleviating symptoms and reducing medication use in mite-sensitive subjects with asthma, but there was no improvement in lung function. The safety of subcutaneous immunotherapy is acceptable. The aim of the study by Feng and colleagues was to explore whether intermittent hypoxia and emphysema existing simultaneously plays overlapped roles on systematic endothelial inflammation and endothelial damage. In a rat model, they found that this overlap elicits more severe systematic endothelial inflammation and endothelial damage. This month, we publish reviews on liberation from ventilatory support in the high-risk-for-failure patient and the relationship between medication adherence and health-related quality of life in patients with COPD. Our case reports relate to coil embolization of pulmonary arteries as a palliative treatment in hepatopulmonary syndrome, late-onset Pompe disease with left-sided bronchomalacia, and complications of positive pressure devices in Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Our teaching cases are gabapentin for treatment of cough syncope and another on delayed presentation of diaphragmatic rupture. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.